0: Chapter 1. Separation Somehow, I entered into many of my biggest deals over the years in May. The cycle seemed as regular as the seasons. Another year, another deal. My colleagues insisted I'd purposely announce an acquisition by Memorial Day simply to wreck their summer vacation plans and demand that we roll up our sleeves with yet another big merger. Looking back on my very first deal, though, I barely could have imagined possessing that sort of sway over other people's lives. For four years, my friend Arthur Carter and I dreamed of starting our own company. Arthur was a fledgling investment banker at Lehman Brothers while I had made my way from Bear Stearns to Burnham Company as a young stockbroker. Commuting into Manhattan each morning to our respective jobs, We talked incessantly of pooling our resources and opening our own business. It was the late 1950s. I was in my mid-twenties. We were young, optimistic, and infused with self-confidence. As we imagined our new business, we looked to Allen & Company, the prestigious merchant bank. Charles Allen had made a fortune investing in startup companies. We were drawn to that sort of enterprise, but knew we didn't want to stop there. I had experience selling securities to individuals and figured a brokerage business alongside a merchant bank would cover our day-to-day operating costs. To produce sufficient cash, we brought in two additional partners, Roger Berland and Peter Potoma. Roger and Peter could be relied upon to generate a steady stream of business while we'd hunt for the episodic and lucrative investment banking deal. Opening day for Carter, Berlin, Potoma, and Weil was thrilling. It was May 2nd, 1960. We had found a small no-frills office with an address that oozed respectability, 37 Wall Street. Conscious of our young age, we were all in our 20s, Peter Potoma had suggested that we buy hats and black umbrellas so that we might appear older. After all, with our own money on the line, credibility would be more important than ever. Shortly after we set up shop, the four of us and our wives convened at Arthur's home to celebrate. We all openly shared our aspirations. To this day, I remember the others repeatedly stressing their desire to become wealthy. What I remember most from that dinner was my declaration that the money should be secondary. What mattered more to me was building a great firm, one that would lead the industry, employ lots of people, endure over many years and, importantly, command respect. Setting off with my new partners amounted to a genuine coming of age. Being my own boss was empowering and nerve-wracking all at the same time. It allowed me to dream, but it also instilled discipline, self-confidence, and a work ethic the likes of which I had never consistently mustered before. I was born on March 16, 1933, and lived in a modest three-story home in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn until I was ten. My mother's parents owned the home and lived on the first floor with my Aunt Rose, while my family lived in two bedrooms on the second level. My maternal grandfather had grown up in what is now Poland, but then was part of Russia. Falling in love, my grandfather married my grandmother and settled in a village northwest of Warsaw, Before long, with three of their five children born, including my three-year-old mother, they emigrated to the United States, entering through Ellis Island in 1908. I don't know the story of how my grandfather went from being a penniless newcomer to his later prosperity. By 1919, he had bought his first home in Brooklyn, and by 1926 opened his own business, mass-producing black mourning dresses. My mother, Etta, was an old-fashioned Jewish mother. She cooked and cleaned and was always loving. My mother was no great intellect but had an unbelievable knack for memorizing and calculating figures, and she taught me at a very early age about arithmetic. To this day, I can manipulate numbers in my head with ease. After their wedding in 1932, my father, Max MacWile went to work with my maternal grandfather in the dressmaking business. Accommodating his new son-in-law, my grandfather changed the company name to Kalika & Weil. By the outbreak of the Second World War, my father had split off from my grandfather and had established his own dressmaking business. For a while, his business thrived. I admired his work ethic and took note that he seemed more prosperous than anyone else in the family. Sadly, though, Disaster suddenly struck. In the early 1940s, my father had taken advantage of wartime price controls for personal profit. He was caught by the Office of Price Administration for buying raw materials at controlled prices and then selling the goods on the black market at an inflated price rather than producing dresses for a fixed price as the rules dictated. He was convicted and given a probationary sentence. In 1943, my sister Helen and I, learned abruptly that the family was moving to Miami Beach. My father sought to gain physical distance from his legal troubles and probably felt it was too risky to stay in business for himself. Arriving in Florida, my parents insisted that I drop back a year in school, but that did little to improve my academic performance. Over the three years we spent in Florida, I was a terrible student. Within a year... I took on my first job delivering newspapers and used to pay Helen a penny a paper to roll each paper. I proved good at sales and making on-time deliveries and soon began winning contests for new subscriptions. As I reached my teens, I became conscious of my father's boisterous personality. He dominated our household, always forcing my mother to take a back seat. He'd often embarrass me in front of my friends by telling lewd jokes or pointing out my inadequacies. These were harbingers of a gradually diminishing reverence I'd have for him over the next several years. In 1947, my father surprised us again by announcing that we were heading back to New York. He had decided to start a new business with a partner importing steel. Reluctantly, my father moved the family into his father's house in Brooklyn for a year. I was still doing poorly in school, so... My parents decided I should go to a boarding school upon our return. With little time to research alternatives, and my parents sense that I might benefit from a disciplined environment, I was enrolled at Peekskill Military Academy. Military school was fantastic for me. There was plenty of hazing my first year, and I learned how to take criticism before dishing it out, a skill with lifelong value. We attended classes six days a week, and there were strictly enforced curfews. The discipline was exactly what I needed. Early on, I had the good fortune to develop a close relationship with Claire France, who was my Latin teacher and tennis coach. France took an active interest in me and motivated me to improve my study habits. He worked with me both in the classroom and on the tennis court and tremendously boosted my self-confidence. By my second semester, my academic performance had begun to improve. By the third term, I really took off, and my grades consistently ranked in the top two or three out of a class of 35. One year, I ranked top in my class and earned high honors. With France's steady encouragement, I worked at my tennis game with passion and soon excelled. By my senior year, I won the Westchester County Singles Tournament for private and parochial school teenage boys, and was invited to join the Junior Davis Cup team from New York. During my years at PMA, my parents were regular visitors. Chomping on a big cigar, my father would typically beckon my friends and regale them with stories and jokes. <laughs> I was embarrassed and proud all at the same time. By now, my father was engaged in his steel importing business. To outward appearances, the business seemed hugely successful as my father lived extravagantly. I learned later, though, that all was not as it seemed. Working at the company one summer, I noticed my father and his partner seemed constantly to be in a competition on who could run up the largest expense account. I thought such a practice represented a bad culture for building a business, and it troubled me that the company was absorbing personal expenditures. These were observations that would only hit home in later life. For the most part, I respected my father greatly in those years and felt he could offer me important life lessons. Indeed, during another summer, he arranged a job for me in a pocketbook factory doing piecework, installing metal fasteners. All my co-workers were hardworking and friendly minorities, who I realized were locked into their menial jobs. My father made a point to tell me, If you don't do well in school, this is the type of job that will be available to you. On another occasion, he put us up at the fancy Mayflower Hotel in Washington. Seeing how I enjoyed the luxurious appointments, my father stressed that, as an adult, you'll only get to enjoy such nice things if you're willing to work very hard. These were simple statements, but somehow the words hit home.